Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. We bring you the very best recorded panels, workshops, and seminars concerning role-playing game design and publishing. This has been made possible by the generous contributions of the panel speakers and double exposure with their leading game design convention, Metatopia. Episode 84, Patterns, Numbers, and Shapes in LARP Design. Recorded at Metatopia 2015, presented by Jay Lee and Jason Morningstar. Welcome to Pattern Language in LARP Design. Um, Should you introduce yourself? Yeah, all right. Who are you, Jason? Who am I? I so I, uh, could you close that door, please? So I'm Jason Morningstar. I'm a, 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 I'm half of Bully Pulpit Games. I design tabletop role-playing games and live-action role-playing games. Uh, and that's who I am. Who are you, Jay? I'm Jay Lee. Um, I design mostly live-action role-playing games. Is this thing actually on? Yes. Oh, huh, weird. Okay. Um, I focus on this, what I call simulate and go games. So games with relatively high characterization that you put people in a situation and then you kind of are immersed and simulating your character for that time. As opposed to, for example, Jason, who does a lot of specialization in narrative games where you add improvisational content as you go. Right, um, so we're coming from different traditions. Yeah, but, right. but part of this panel is, is the commonality between them and finding... Yeah, finding exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, Someone shut that door for us too. Yeah. I'm just trying to control for noise and make sure everybody can hear us. So uh, Jay approached me with the idea for this panel, and it, it really caught fire because uh, I'm a big fan of Christopher Alexander, uh, who is an architect, uh, and the the idea of uh, es- establishing patterns that are that are interrelated and thank you and supportive of one another is something that uh, makes a lot of sense in architecture and really. In game design, it's it's easily transferable, and so we started thinking about that and developing uh, patterns based on things that we had seen over and over again in designing and playing live action games. Uh, so would you like to... Actually, before we get started, um, I would just love to hear from you guys. Like, you know, what's how many people have written a LARP before? Yeah. How many people are planning to write a LARP later? Okay, cool. Okay, who's never written a LARP before? That's really cool. Awesome. All right, um, kind of who is more interested, or actually just toss it out for me, like what are you, why are you here, and kind of what types of LARPs are you interested in, if you have any sort of specific preferences. What types are there? Okay, that, that question frames the discussion. That, that is an intense and elaborate question. Um, what do you like about LARPs? I guess the fact that you can just get into it and maybe yeah. affect a personality yeah. growth or change some of the really impressive things that I've seen. Cool. How about some of the rest of you guys? Why are you here? What sort of games do you make? Why are you here, Alex? That's a really good question. Um, I really like uh, freeform games that yeah. maybe have a role-playing component yeah. and maybe even don't, and mm-hmm. that involve movement. Cool. I'd like to find better ways to put better mechanics into theatrical works. Cool. 
things that we kind of hope to talk about in this workshop is a sense of like what the landscape or the medium that we're working with when we say LARP in and when we say like uh, a lot of different types of LARP behaves behaves like because one thing that happens when you're running in LARP as opposed to say in tabletop right is that you're working in a medium that is spontaneous real-time human behavior and human sensory processing and psychology so this kind of constrains the resources that you're working with, and then everything that gets constructed gets constructed off of that. So there's a ton of LARP theory out there. There are a ton of models for how to make LARP. This is one of the ones that we use. Right. So yeah, try it on, see how you feel about it. So, so uh, do you want to talk about the, the, those resources? Yeah, let's talk uh, about them. So the most obvious one is space, right? I mean, yeah. like uh, in a tabletop game, space is still a, a concern, right? But, but it's, it's sharply defined. The, the word tabletop is, is in the description of the experience. Yeah. Not so much with LARP, uh, because uh, it's fundamentally a kinesthetic activity. There, there's going to be movement, uh, and, and space is important. And many of the patterns that, that we have defined, and I think we should hasten to add that like, this is something that is extensible, right? That, that what, what, I'm really, what I'm hoping is that by demonstrating sort of this format and the way that things can interrelate, that you guys will all be like, oh, hey, there are, there are many, many more patterns, and, and we can lock them in and maybe start a, you know, a, a larger glossary of these. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, talking about space. Yeah, so one thing that's interesting about space is that we, as people, are constantly responding to space, right? Like, if you think about the physical format that we're in right now, where we're kind of sitting, we're on a stage, there's a table between us, you're all sitting in lines of chairs looking at us. Right, like if we were going to run a LARP in this format, like it would not be super dynamic, right? But like if we like tossed chairs willy nilly all over the room, stacked them in piles, and then you know hid behind them as forts, like that changes our behavior and that changes the conversations that we have, right? Like right now, most pairs of us in this room would have trouble having a conversation, but if you cleared it out, suddenly that becomes easier. Right. Actually, I take that back. If you completely clear out the room, it's still hard for pairs of people to have a conversation because what happens is we're all just standing in the same room, so we're all going to stand in a big circle and talk to each other. Right. So it's kind of exactly how we structure the space that we're in affects how we process what's going on in our own heads and how we socialize with each other. And that's uh, just that you were talking about place-based transformation, and yeah. you're also talking about uh, conversation size and social yeah. bubble size. Right? So these, like, uh, even yeah. in these discussions, these patterns uh, are already finding some yeah. applicability. Do you want to explain exactly how a pattern Yeah, works? totally. Okay, so so we just stole ruthlessly from Christopher Alexander, and his, his book, uh, A Pattern Language, uh, is uh, available at archive.org. You can go and check it out uh, without cost, um, and you can also, of course, just get a copy. Uh, and it's, he's got four or five hundred patterns that start with urban planning and kind of end with interior design, basically. Uh, and they're all uh, interrelated, uh, and they're all about architecture and like how to how to uh, build human and humane spaces. And it's fascinating, uh, even if you're not 
you know, an architect. So, for example, one of them is the six-foot balcony. People don't use balconies that are narrower than six feet, just for some reason. Nobody knows why. But that's why all balconies that you see that are not, like, little, like, stick-out things that people actually use are, like, wide. And so, as an architect, you know, you can look at that pattern, and uh, it can connect to others. Uh, there, there's another pattern is, is about alcoves. Uh, by, by integrating alcoves into social spaces, you allow... Uh, dyads, you know, two people to have a conversation in a larger context. Uh, and if you don't have those kinds of spaces, then that doesn't happen. Uh, so, so that's very inspiring to us. And so our, our patterns follow his model. Uh, so there's, there's a title, uh, there's uh, sort of a, a problem statement, or, or you know, uh, at what it relates to, the body of the problem, a potential solution, and obviously there are many, many solutions, but this is, you know, a, a pretty straightforward one that, that, we, uh, that we came up with. Some instruction, uh, and then usually an example from, uh, in, in our case, different LARPs that yeah. we've, we've either played or written. Yeah. Uh, and I think we're going to pick a few that we really like to talk yeah. about in more depth later. Yeah, exactly. We'll pick our favorite pattern. So do you want to, the, the next thing after space is time. Do you want to talk about time? Okay, yeah. So like I'm, a, I'm, I'm the time guy on this panel, I think, because I, I've, I've written a number of games that are rigidly rigidly control for time uh, and uh, time is not it's not an element or a resource that's unique to live action play but it's one that uh, it can be very useful in controlling the experience uh, certainly uh, by setting hard limits uh, not only can you pace a game easily uh, and potentially without having to have a facilitator or moderator or game master intervene which can make an experience more immersive so if it's a game about four people drowning in a boat, uh, having four people pretending to drown in the boat, and then a fifth person who's checking his watch and, and telling you what the water's like uh, is a very different experience from four people drowning in a boat with all of that stuff handled uh, in some other way. Maybe as simple as a stopwatch, so that you know that the boat's going to sink in 45 minutes. right? Which potentially accomplishes the same thing as the guy checking his watch. Um, and that's uh, that's going to be a very different uh, experience from the game where uh, that that time is uh, apportioned in a different way. So if it's the we're drowning in a boat in five minutes game, that's the way that people interact is going to change dramatically from the 45-minute game. Uh, and, and as a designer, uh, you can pay attention to those differences, and they can make a profound difference in the, the sort of uh, play of your game. Yeah. So one of, the next one is one of my favorite ones, which is player working memory. Um, so essentially, if you think about it, right, when you are role-playing in a, a fictional world, you have to keep that fictional world in your head. And what's remarkable, more remarkable about LARP than tabletop is that everyone has to keep the same world in their head even though they're not always interacting with each other at all times, right? If you're all sitting around a table, there's only kind of one camera, and then everyone is describing what happens, and then everybody just remembers everything that happens, right? And, and it's very easy to say, oh, hey, well, what was that thing that, that, yeah. that you mentioned five minutes ago? Whereas in a LARP, you may be in a different room. So ultimately, you are limited by the short-term working memory of your group of players. So what are some things that this looks like? Well, for one, um, so this is a psychological heuristic um, that is not absolute, right? But like we can keep approximately four to six completely unique items in our memory. Um, there are the ways that we cluster those items can cause 
us to be able to remember more or less, um, but a good kind of rule of thumb for thinking about this is if I recite off 10 numbers to you right now, like 1, 7, 5, 4, 9, 3, 0, uh, all the way up to 10, your chances of reciting them back to me are probably pretty low. If I recite them to you in like a phone number grouping, then suddenly your chances of getting them back to me are suddenly really high, even though it's just the same 10 digits, right? Um, so kind of the, the way that we structure our working memory um, it introduces two interesting elements that constrain our design. So one of them is that it means that if you're trying to have your players memorize something, um, you, you can really kind of only give them like up to maybe five-ish items to memorize, right? Um, another interesting effect is that everything they have to keep track of in their head pulls from the same resource. So this gets interesting because if you have space that you need people to pretend looks different, then that pulls from their same resource as their ability to pay attention to the game. So in other words, the less they have to continually tax their working memory, the more immersed they can be, and the more kind of real-time focus and responsiveness they can have to what's actually going on in the game. Um, so a good example of this is that if you fake a wall and you say, okay, this line, this line separates the rooms, but every time I look over there, I have to remember that I'm not seeing what's over there. Like, that's a big tax on my working memory, right? Um, so a third interesting thing that happens with the memory effect is that people have a drastically easier time keeping track of the relationships and possible combinations of four items than they do of five items. And this is because if you handshake four people or four, you know, factions or whatever, you get six possible relationships, right? If you handshake five, you get ten possible relationships. And this crosses the working memory gap. So what that means is that if you're talking about the number of any given thing to have, the number of factions, the number of characters, kind of the number of people involved in a plot... Um, the difference between three and four and the difference between four and five, the, four and five is like your bar. Um, so this is one of my favorite patterns because it essentially means that if you are looking at plots with um, that, that feel sophisticated and dynamic and outside of my sense of being a completely able to control and balance as a player, I'm looking at plots with five elements, Right. But then if I'm suddenly looking at a plot with seven elements, that g still goes outside my working memory again. So then and I, can't, I, I have trouble memorizing who those eight characters are, right? But at the kind of five and six line is I remember who the characters are, but it still feels dynamic. And I think that's why a lot of LARPs more recently have started to gravitate toward optimizing to those numbers. And another way you can look at that is like if you look at like a classic operatic cast or a classic play cast, they're usually about five characters. Um, because it introduces that level of complexity. And, uh, I'm obsessed with this one. So. No, it's, it's, a, it's a great one. And, and the um, sort of the converse of that is that by uh, by using those deliberately, you can introduce dissonance. If that's something, yeah. if that's something that you want yeah. to be intentionally exactly. confusing, you can provide more information than a person can process in their working memory. Yeah. Um, but you need to do that thoughtfully. Yeah. Exactly. Right? Right? Because then what's going to happen is they're going to cluster it. Right? They'll be like, oh, that is the faction of bearded guys. Those are the people I have been in love with. Right? And are those the mental clusters you actually want them to have? Right. Yeah. Memory. Okay, uh, so you want to talk about energy management? You want to talk about energy management? Well, I'll talk about the last one. Oh, you <laughs> <laughs> Sure, sure. 
so uh, there's all kinds of, uh, of energy that players uh, and participants are going to bring to the game, right? And if you look on the handout, we're talking about emotional, physical, social energy, improvisational, performative energy, um, and these uh, strategic energy, right? So these are uh, all thing, all uh, resource that, that players uh, or participants are going to need to expend uh, in the game. And management of those not only is important uh, from the point of view of making a game that's effective, engaging, and fun, but also uh, in terms of making uh, an experience that's going to be uh, those things as well, that's going to be, uh, that's going to accomplish whatever your goals are. So, uh, for example, um, in, in a lot of my games and a lot of sort of structured freeform games, there's a, there's a very uh, solid expectation that you're going to, to bring uh, creative energy to the game. Uh, maybe your character is just a, a postcard with a few words on it, and the expectation is that you're going to flesh that out in a way that's going to be uh, fun for other people to bounce off of. Uh, and that, that uh, is a, a tax on your, uh, your performative and improvisational energy. And that's something that uh, I need to be aware of because if I give you too much of that, uh, it's going to be overwhelming. Uh, particularly in a game that's going to last nine minutes or two hours. If, if uh, it, and conversely, if I give you too much information, then we get into working memory problems. Uh, so there's a real fine line there that you have to be aware of. And that's just uh, that. That's uh, so. So that's one kind of energy management that you need to be aware of as a designer. Certainly physical energy management is really important too. Uh, if your game is active, uh, if your game uh, is going to be played in, a, in an area where there's a lot of movement or there's a lot of vigorous movement of different kinds, uh, then you, know, you need to be aware that people get exhausted yeah. and there are limits to that. Yeah. And those, those limits are easily quantified. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so what are they doing when they're tired, right? People's energy goes like this over the course of a game, right? right? Yeah. And different people vacillate at different speeds, right? So, like, what, are the, what can they do to still be participating in advancing the game in their recharge phase? Well, and also, um, uh, period, empty periods, uh, periods of stillness and, and yeah. recharge can be really, really effective uh, and uh, can be yeah. really important. And there's a game called The Tribunal, which uh, uh, some of you may have played, but it, it's... Uh, um, there are long periods of downtime. So there are, there are intense bursts of activity and energy and creativity and then like uncomfortably long periods when nothing is happening and the characters have nothing to do and it's intentional in the yeah. game. Uh, and not only is that a, a sort of a refractory period where, yeah. where, where you, you get a chance to just be, be still, but in, in, the, in the context of the game, it's also a wonderful period of waiting and, and uh, tension. Great. Yeah, which is a really good point because not only is your are your players' ability to be on like is that time limited, but your ability to be complete your players' ability to be completely off is also limited because at around the twenty minute mark they're going to start getting antsy. Right, right. And again, that's a pattern. Yeah, right? they're, exactly. They're, you've got about twenty minutes, yeah. and then they need something. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Or unless that's your point, is okay. to give them nothing. Oh, right, to right, do. Right, yeah, right. yeah. And we can go back and revisit all of these with examples, too, I think. Yeah, we start talking we about patterns. But yeah. we should talk about criticality. So criticality is another uh, fun thing that I like. Um, this is probably the mathiest we will get. Um, but essentially, it's a term from chaos theory. And what it essentially means is it's the balance between the level of responsiveness and the level of stability in a situation. Um, and we call that this a resource for a reason I will explain in a moment. But essentially, the way that you think about it um, is that one of the most common by far things that people like getting out of LARP 
or out of really any experience is a sense of significance, is a sense that I did something and it mattered, right? So if your game, if your LARP is about a story, um, then this, is, this creates an interesting setup because what happens is that characters have to take actions that then affect other characters and, that, and in being affected, the other characters then take actions which then affect someone else, right? So this level of sensitivity of responsiveness is something that we can tweak by how we structure our plot, right? Um, so as an example of this, um, if I say like, so imagine the entire Harry Potter cast Right, in a room together, in like in a LARP, right? Maybe minus the bad guy, um, and you and you're you don't give them any external plot. Um, you don't give them like you know Voldemort's trying to destroy the world, and you say just okay, you guys are here. It's your new year at Hogwarts. Go. Like you can kind of imagine that um, they will have stuff to do, right? That they will create content for each other, and they will respond to each other's content, and they'll have their romances, and they'll have their like adventures and escapes and whatever, and they'll kind of be running the story, right? Um, by contrast, if you take like the entire cast of like Lord of the Rings minus the bad guy, um, and you put them in a room together with no one trying to destroy the world, they're gonna like stare at each other and then like go and have lunch, but by themselves somewhere else. You know what I mean, <laughs> right? Like so. And so kind of the, the flip side of this is that let's say you take the entire cast of Star Wars with the bad guys and you put them in a room together, they're going to be in that room for maybe 15 minutes before like half of people die, right? Um, so the middle ground, like the Harry Potter example, is kind of what we want because we want this sense in which people are doing things, other people are responding, right? But it's sustainable, right? There's both this sense of high responsiveness to each other, like, oh, hey, I decide to go do a thing and then, you know, it matters to you guys. And, you know, I have a continual impact throughout the game, but also that this no impact is so destabilizing that suddenly the, everybody is chasing that one plot line and the entire plot, a story falls apart and is over, Right. Um, so the super, super responsive version, like the Star Wars version, is what we call super critical, right? It's something where if every someone does a little thing, like suddenly there's a duel and then suddenly everyone's shooting it out and then everyone's dead. And then, like, so the system is going, goes up and then it goes down. And then now everyone's dead, right? The system is super subcritical. Nothing else can happen. So that's too much sensitivity. And then in the other version, you have too little sensitivity, which is to say, like, some hobbit says something to some dude. Like, they're all at a dinner party together. Nobody really cares, <laughs> right? Um, so one common mistake that really big, more political games make is that it's relatively subcritical. It's relatively overly stable. Um, but kind of the, the space of variation and the amount of stuff that people can do while you have this balance of responsiveness and stability is what we call criticality, and that affects a lot of things like how we structure plot, how we structure interaction. So I know that was kind of abstract, um, but we'll get into examples. Yeah, right. And, and uh, let's get into examples right now because on both, yeah. both extremes, there are really good ones. Yeah. So last night, I, I play-tested a, a game uh, that I'm developing, and halfway through the game, something caught on fire. Uh, not in real life. <laughs> you never know. And uh, the, the instructions were, uh, this needs to be fixed, and if you don't fix it in 30 seconds, everybody dies. <laughs> Guess what happened? <laughs> so, uh, super critical, poor choice on my part in terms of how to, how to structure that dramatic interaction. And when you talk about big LARPs, like, yeah. like uh, political LARPs, yeah. like, like uh, vampire and yeah. theater stuff yeah. often... Uh, that the subcriticality that yeah. is often uh, a, a function of making a dollar because yeah. because 
they don't want to alienate people or cause yeah. a blood opera that's going to cause yeah. someone not to come back the next yeah. week, which is a really interesting sort yeah. of external uh, input into that process, too. Yeah. So if you're actually applying this from a design standpoint, like I, my rule of thumb is that if you don't want to do it from the math point of view, just think about it like sex. Right. Like you want it to be intense for longer and then like things kind of explode and it's cool. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Like, like does the experience for each given player of like playing through the game can imagining them taking their most frequently and most likely actions pace reasonably like sex. That's a really good rule of thumb. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and, and then we established the criticality is a dial, right? So yeah. it's, very, it's possible that you want to write a blood opera. You yeah. know? And if you want a game that's going to be over in 45 minutes with people murdering each other, yeah. then that's, yeah. that's a dial you can set. Yeah, and but it can be very editorial. It, yeah. yeah, but it, that's often suboptimal. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Right, so what's your favorite pattern, Jason? My favorite pattern, Jay? I don't know. <laughs> I, like a lot. I mean, I, I think that uh, they're all fascinating. But the ones that I really love and that I use all the time, in fact, it's sort of a crutch for me. Uh, one of those crutch for me is narrative gaps, right? That's uh, a really good one. Which is uh, the, the <laughs> idea behind the narrative gaps pattern is that you're, you're deliberately leaving out uh, or leading information uh, that is going to be filled in in play. And what this does is it empowers your uh, participants to, to infill and create knowledge in the game uh, in a way that is personally meaningful and that will be relevant to, to one another. So narr- narrative gap. Sometimes you give players more than they need, right? It relates to in-game complexity. It certainly relates to criticality. Uh, it's possible to provide too much information about a character or a situation. So the solution to that is to you know, use empty space with the expectation and trust that players as pattern matching and story matching creatures are going to infill it with meaning of, the, of, of their own. So rather than saying, uh, you know, you, uh, you're the angry son of the, the dispossessed prince and you want nothing but uh, to destroy your household, you can say, uh, you've got a real problem and you need to get it fixed. And, you know, the, the relationship map will make implications. Why do you want to destroy your household, too? Exactly, yeah. right. Now, you can ask those questions and provide context so that the, whatever the answer is going to be, it's going to be Steve's going to end up being a revengeful asshole, and, and that's all you really wanted. Uh, so the, the details don't matter to you as the designer, but to the player, they're deeply meaningful because they created them. Um, so that's sort of narrative gaps. Um, and this will this will happen organically, whether you like it or not. If you if you uh, if you create uh, explicit antagonism, well, that that's great. But if you don't create explicit antagonism, uh, but imply it and allow the the players to bring it themselves, it, it'll it'll yeah. be there. There's a, it's sort of an act of faith, but I guarantee that it works. Jay, I, Jay, oh, go ahead. I once played toward the the play, people creating antagonism. I once played in a Secrets and Powers style art. Um, it was a bit over a dozen people where literally everyone was on the same side and no one knew it, and then everybody ended up killing each other anyway. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. it's, and that's a, I think that's a natural instinct, yeah. too, especially in a constrained, like a parlor LARP, where you're going to be playing for four hours. Uh, you, you look for antagonism because you want to bring the drama right away. Yeah, exactly. And, then, yeah. and people will do it. A good example of this is Limbo. Uh, in Limbo, uh, the, there are huge narrative gaps because you basically fill out a questionnaire uh, that... that differentiates your character from you in some meaningful way, and then you're told how you die by giving a random slip of paper. That's your character. That's all you have to work with, and yet all kinds of rich interaction comes out of that. Jay, I'm wondering what your, one of your favorite patterns is. My favorite pattern is conversation size. Uh, Yeah. Um, So, (laughs) 
It's the idea that um, the types of interactions and plots that you get get really affected by the average number of people who participate in a given conversation. Um, and this comes down, how you control that comes down to all sorts of things, how you control space. Maybe you just have a high level rule that says no more than three people in a conversation. You know, maybe you do it by how you structure a plot. Um, most often it's some combination of these. Um, but what's interesting about conversation size is that because LARP is something where um, you kind of have to get everyone on the same page very, very quickly for it to be real, the more people need to participate, who the more people that need to participate in an interaction, the less subtle that interaction can be, because essentially whatever gets retained and kept and responded to in the plot becomes at the intersection of everyone's ability to comprehend what's going on. So that means that the smaller your conversations are, the more subtlety you can embed in the game. Um, so, and the larger your conversations are, kind of the slower things go. I mean, it's sort of similar to why everyone hates meetings at work, right? Mm -hmm. um, so my favorite cluster size, personally, is three. Um, because I think three people is enough for kind of shifting dynamics, but it's still like when you actually have interactions, you're still accountable to the other people around, but then you can come up with something creative and you can't be super shot down and then you go and work it out with the next person. Um, I have run a game with an explicit rule that unless you have a power otherwise, no one can have a conversation with more than one other person at a time. So it's a two-person conversation size, and that gets super, super nuanced. It's a, it's a really dark romantic game, um, and like, it allows people to kind of really explore subtly different personal relationships and personal feelings about topics, because you can dish to one person and then dish about something else to a different person in a different language. Um, <coughs> and, and there's no one to contradict or to yeah, amplify, exactly. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, if you just think about, like, the types of conversations you have with a one or two people versus with a large group, it's really different, right? So, like, one of my favorite stories that illustrates conversation size is that we ran this week-long, like, intense, like, fantasy epic LARP um, at my college at one point, and there were about 30 players and, you know, it was a classic fantasy epic. So the good guys had, like, on day three of five, pretty much figured out who the bad guys were. Like, they weren't positive, but they're like, I think that that guy is probably corrupt. I think that guy's a traitor trying to destroy the world. I'm not sure, but probably. And then they lost anyway, because the furniture in the rooms were structured, like, they were dorm lounges. So they were, like, these large couches and circles. So anytime the good guys try to sit down and have a conversation to plan for the strategy that the kingdom is going to take, everyone else joined them because that was what was going on. So all these strategy sessions ended up happen happening in giant groups in which, like, if there's this person here that I'm 80% sure is evil, even 90% sure is evil, but I'm not positive, but they're acting so reasonably and politely, and then there are all these other neutrals, like, they just they were just too polite to shoot them down. So as a result, like if the, the players, if the good guys had ever been able to get like two hours alone, they would have solved all their problems because they were actually ahead of schedule on figuring out who evil was. But then they didn't because, and then all decisions were made by consensus. And then like as a result, kind of the lowest common denominator, which destroyed the kingdom, won. Which and that points to other patterns like spatial layout. Right? Yeah, exactly. And and. Uh, also, uh, conversation size ties right into dyads and triads. You right? want to talk about yeah, that? I do, which is another one I really love. Right. So, so the idea behind the dyads and triads uh, pattern is that uh, when you're building situations and characters, that you want to have pairs and trios of, of interrelated interests, fields of interest. 
So, uh, and what that does is it, it uh, helps you engineer conversation size yeah. quite easily, right? So an example of this is my game, The Climb, which very specifically has a rule that no more than three people can be in the same space at the same time. Uh, but, though, but those three people could be any of six. There's six characters who are all divided into dyads, right? So there are two characters who have very companionable interests, two others who have companionable interests, and a, a third uh, dyad. And there's also two triads of those people. So uh, their natural inclinations are going to be uh, supportive of the fact that, that they're not able to communicate in, in larger groups than three uh, in terms of the way their relationships are built, which supports the, the uh, allocation of physical space and the, the way that uh, conversations are sort of implemented in the game. And those, those things sort of, it's a feedback loop that works really yeah. well. Yeah. One more pattern from you. Maybe then we'll open it for oh. questions. I feel like I've actually kind of talked about a lot of my other favorite patterns. I love energy management. I love, um, actually, here's a simple one. Players don't move furniture. Oh, this is so this is so great. And yeah. It's such an eye opener, right? Yeah. Like literally if you place furniture somewhere, even if it's if you place a single chair over there in in a room that has tables and chairs, players will have these awkward une- uneven conversations in which like one person is sitting in the chair and the other person's like awkwardly sitting on the floor looking up at them rather than pull another chair and move it over there. Um, and this is something you can absolutely use as a as a design tool. And it's not it's yeah. not a universal thing. But, yeah. But you can where you set up yeah. things in the room almost always is where it's going to yeah. stay so you can design for that if you don't have four chairs uh, in a row then there's not going to be a bench in your game yeah and this is like again my game the climb it's three tenths right you have three tenths in the play space and no one in the many many times that I've run it or heard about it running has ever thought about dragging a tent to another tent which is actually very portable like right. tents are not yeah, like you can, super you can hard totally to do, do right? that yeah uh, but no one has ever done it yeah. and so you get these you know insular conversations yeah. uh, separated from yeah. each other all the time yeah. yeah that's a really that's a it's a strange and, and yeah. awesome thing yeah especially if you place it with kind of a sense of significance then people know people are like oh I, I accept that the GM is telling me to do this right, right. Um, I actually also love, especially in conventions with new players, like coming in and asking players to help me set up furniture, because then you can kind of start immediately seeing how players interact with each other naturally, and you know who takes initiative, who helps do what, who thinks about things, right? And then if you're casting on site, that really informs my casting, and also it's convenient because people helping me move furniture. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a good point. Yeah. Well, we have. Uh, so we have 20 minutes left in the room. So yeah, we should probably finish a little early so that there's passing time. I think so, yeah. yeah. But this is a great time to start asking questions. Yeah. Guy in the black hat. Guy in the black hat has a question about conversation size, actually. Yeah. Because I think this is this is super important in Secrets and Powers LARPs design. Often when Secrets and Powers LARPs reach their climax, there's yeah. usually a big fight in which oh, yeah. a bunch of people are Midnight all clustered like so. Yeah. And if yeah. I'm not involved in the big fight, then I'm, I guess I'm yeah. doing my plot over here. And so you got like maybe six or maybe eight people and they're all trying to engage in mechanics and all at the same time yeah. it's sort of a clusterfuck um, and, and, and I'm always like why don't we invent mass combat rules for LARP sometimes yeah. uh, even though that seems counterintuitive yeah. um, what, what, are, what are ways that we can do to keep the emergence you know properties and secrets and powers game intact while also being able to handle the fact that it's going to snowball into some mass event at some point 
So is the question kind of what are some constructive mass combat mechanics? Uh, yeah, well, constructive ma mass combat is an example of a larger issue, which is which is your climaxes will then snowball into larger unsustainable. Yeah. Um, Essentially, they're physical conversations at yeah. that point. Right? Yeah, exactly. And they're physical conversations yeah. with eight people shouting okay. at each other. Yes. Right. So I guess my response to this is to ask the question. What do what is climax? Like what needs to happen in climax that you actually care about, and what happens in climax that just happens because that's what we're all used to. Um, and I think that for any given game, like climax doesn't actually have to be that complicated. What happens at climax is it that people are able to emotionally vent, like you know what they have pent up? Is it that people just have to be able to shout at each other and like get this like massive co public confrontation? Is that people have to be able to kill each other? Like, pick the thing that you actually want out of climax, and then build a mechanic that does that thing, and then just don't let the rest of it happen if it's not important. Oh, and, and it's the, if you if you look at the pattern, uh, the, it seems like the optimal size for those confrontations is three people, right? It's going to be the most intense uh, yeah. interaction is going to be yeah. any three people. Yeah. So you need to find a way to atomize eight people shouting at each other into three groups of three yeah. people shouting at each other. And it sounds like the theory, so I'm like, let's try it. Right, well, yeah. uh, and I, I don't know. Like, uh, you could probably do that by manipulating the space yeah. a little bit. You could certainly do that by just saying you can't have a giant shouting match with more than three yeah. people and then justifying that fictionally. I have a rule that you can't intervene in combat. Like, if you see combat happening, you cannot join <coughs> in if you weren't there at the beginning. Which is I, don't, a, I don't use it for everything. But, but that's a mechanic that would yeah. probably help with that. Then you, yeah. then you have three people fighting and a bunch of people watching, waiting for their chance to jump in. Yeah. But yeah, that's a that's a totally legitimate concern, right? Yeah. And, and I don't know that these patterns are going to fix that. No, 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 but, 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 but I mean, like, 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 I don't know if you read the article on blockbuster LARP design, but it's actually uh, you know, from from last year's book, book, but it's totally an, an issue with, you know, College of Wizardry and a couple of other, yeah. you know, sort of larger games where um, it's, it's unstructured enough that the, the players are just going to go around yeah. and do whatever, but but then that means that at important moments everybody dogpiles a thing, which yeah. means that something at some moments that should be maybe more intimate conflicts turn out to be giant group uh, uh, trials inadvertently. But yeah. And, and it, it'd be interesting to see it, and that as a design challenge to tackle. I'm actually on a mission to fix this. I think it I think it comes <laughs> down to like what is important about the moment and like. I'm not familiar with, I haven't done Secrets of Power's Large, but if you look at film and comics, when those big, giant, two big teams coming together fighting mm -hmm. things like the end of Harry Potter yeah. or, you know, superhero movies, yeah. it's not everybody piling it together in one frame. It's yeah. these two characters go over and beat each other up over here, and then the, yeah. the frame shifts to these people fighting. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, part of that's the unique nature of LARP, which is that uh, every, it, at that moment, everybody needs to be in communication with everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas for most of the game, it's okay to yeah. be off in corners because you can then go back and go, did you hear what happened to Ultraman? Uh, at the very end of that, that's no longer applicable. Yeah. So it is, it's a pernicious problem. Yeah, one camera, yeah. Other comments or, or thoughts? Interesting. We get into a very engaging conversation. Um, and I think the most useful things are actually for splitting up in the party because um, a mistake that happens a lot 
ideas on player energy management. You do slow scenes or really boring things when people split up, but if you can do fast burn when people split up, you can do the recovery when you do yeah. someone else's scene. Yeah, that's a good That's, a good that's interesting. I think that that could be some really good advice for people primarily. I think, I think a lot of this, there's, there's some broad applicability uh, for, for a number of these. Sure. That's interesting. I would love to see how that plays out. I was wondering if you guys could talk about silence in LARPs at all, and because that's something that you could design for in like a very deliberate way, like like literally when it gets to 45 minutes, nobody talks for a set number of minutes. Um, but I'm really interested to see if there's a way to design that elicits it and um, allows people to experience different kinds of silence, right? Like awkward silence, comfortable silence, like pleasant or restful silence, tense silence. Um, yeah, do you guys have any thoughts on that? Feel like this is a you question. Sure, I guess. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think that uh, like the the uh, the real holy grail of that would, would be for that to be an emergent thing, right? Which would be so cool to, to have a game that sort of engineers situations where it's not like s- s- sorry, uh, step four point six. Now we are silent, and there, yeah. there's a number of games like that, yeah. right? Or games that are like you just don't get to talk. Yeah. Uh, with, which is a you know that's a that's a good use of sound management and, and you can get all kinds of interesting things coming out of it. There's a Golden Cobra game this year that I think does that in a in a very interesting way. But uh, for for that to be uh, sort of both systematized and emergent, I think it's really challenging. I don't I don't know that I have a solution for that. Yeah, I'm actually facing this right now because I'm working. I ran this LARP adaptation of The Little Mermaid, except super emo. Um, where like one of the characters is the mermaid and she can't talk right so I had to like come up with a setup and we did a lot of workshopping at the beginning on communicating with silence because otherwise what happens if you only have one character who can't talk is they're laughed out of all of the content this is the same game it was where all of the interactions are pairwise so also then she kind of has these extremely like sensory and like physical interactions with people but getting people to actually sit down and spend time with silence is really tough so I'm not sure about that one I was, I was in a game yesterday uh, Catch-Ups uh, yeah. and it's probably the only LARP I've ever been yeah. in that had like, like a variety of different kinds yeah. of silence that felt very natural yeah. and I think it's because we were all doing something with our hands like you're yeah, receiving or giving a manicure yeah. um, and so I'm like is that the only way to get a picture? Yeah. Yeah. Something, uh, actually I, I take that back actually doing something with hands while I was thinking about yeah. doing an activity yeah. Yeah. yeah it's interesting yeah. background <laughs> 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 sorry background silence oh good for that because you had a track running last night in a spaceship that the second the, the radio comes on, no matter where we were in our conversation, it was because we knew that wasn't going to repeat again. And because we couldn't like, rewind that, no, it was, might have been critical information. So if you had an environment where there were very quiet things that happened, where even if you were having talking, we might miss something important, yeah, that, that's, that would that, be an imposed yeah. silence based on the need to listen you have to be really attentive to subtle, subtle auditory cues. That'd be easy to do, but it's, it's a good question. Yeah. I, think I actually wrote this game called Argentine in which you play a bunch of evil wizards like minions who are... I, that. I didn't know that was yours. Oh, that's really cool. We should, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so like they're evil wizards like minions who are stuck in a prison about to be executed. And one thing that surprised me when consistently in gameplays was that the players would sit, be quiet and not talk to each other and just sit on their own for like up to 10 minutes at a time. 
And at, the, at first, jamming this freaked me out because I was like, this game is so boring. No one has anything to do. So I was, I went around and I started checking on people. I'm like, is, are you okay? You know, do you have enough stuff to do? And they're all like, yeah, yeah, leave me alone. I'm thinking. Right. Um, and people would just do this. And so I think like having that internal content that is alive internally, like, the, the, and the idea of a period of waiting or uh, a, a time when 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 the when your the energy management uh, cycles down is going to naturally bring that out. And a, and a beautiful example of, of a game that's engineered really well to to both evoke that and then ruin it is the Tribunal again. Have you played the Tribunal? I okay, it's pretty good. But the, so so uh, what happens in the Tribunal is as it begins, everybody's like ah, and they're all in each other's face, and they're trying to sort of sort out their hierarchy and you know, and get their story straight because they're all going to get executed if they don't get it right. And then there's just waiting. Like they're they're like, okay, we've got a story. Fifteen minutes into the game, they're like, we know what we're going to say. You're not going to mess this up. We're all going to stick to the story. Everything's right. And then there's a long period when nothing happens, and it's just long enough that somebody can't stand it anymore, right? And then they start talking, and as soon as that happens, everything goes goes haywire. And the only group I ever saw that almost beat it was uh, a, a group of people at Big Bad Con, yeah. and they were all like really relaxed California people. <laughs> and, uh, relaxed California. Just I was like, here it comes, like. You know they're going to start sniping at each other again because they can't stand the silence. Somebody was like, "Let's do some exercise." Together. <laughs> <laughs> and they did. They're like, did they do that? Oh, it's so great! And, and it took their mind off it, and they, and they kept it together. Somebody still ran them out, but it was it was it was a near thing. I've never seen it. That's pretty hard to beat. Other. Uh, so I'm curious to, to look through this lens at the choice between uh, simultaneous conversations versus like uh, everybody watching uh, yeah. a scene happen. I'm going to analyze that. Does that thought bring any discussion to mind? So scenes that are essentially performative, where the rest of the participants are observing. Yeah, like do do I do I say yeah have multiple conversations? You won't know what happens over here, or do I say look this is a more cinematic thing? Uh, but, but moreover, like, how does that affect the player's behavior and understanding of the game? Yeah, that's a, that's a huge choice to make, right? Yeah. Because uh, it, it uh, touches on transparency and player knowledge, right? So, so there are going to be circumstances where the choice is obvious, right? You have a game where there's hidden information or you want there to be paranoia and suspicion, and, yeah. then, then ultimately you don't want a performative kind of, kind of situation. Uh, but it's not always going to be obvious. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that if they do have to blank it out, that affects your memory management, right? But if they don't, then um, you can save a lot of criticality trouble by having things be performative. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good lens through which to make that choice, right? How, how are you managing criticality? Uh, because yeah. Criticality matters way more in simulated go games. Right, because if you're narrating, then kind of you're just adding a thing, can and you, then everyone sees. Can you describe simulating go? With, so I guess the distinction for me is whether people are kind of uh, improvisationally or what's the term theatrically adding content for everyone. So like Jeep Form is a super theatrical game uh, style, right? Um, so criticality doesn't matter as much because everyone is responding to a similar body of content, and they have kind of the time to make up and add new content. And also, as a player, my sense of contribution is creative and more out of character. Right, like I know that if I add something, everyone's going to receive it because everyone's literally watching me and has to respond to the content I add. 
Right. So I think of criticality as being more difficult in games in which people are real time simulated what's going on, you know, talking to each other and kind of real time responding um, without that improvisation. Like with more 360 immersion or. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, more immersive. Yeah. So then that might be, uh, you know, yeah. a, a way to yeah. parse that as well. Uh, yeah. but there's definitely a gray spot in the middle, yeah. <laughs> which is probably. Yeah. And then, and then there's also kind of the question of equality of protagonist angle, right? Like, if some, because it's a trend in American LARP that like we want everyone to be the protagonist, right? <laughs> um, so when you do that, criticality gets really, really difficult because how do you have everyone be equally responsive to everyone else? I actually have really elaborate thoughts on this, but I will not share them now because they're elaborate. Um, whereas if you take like an angle where people are more like some people are the heroes and some people are there as support characters and different players are getting fundamentally different things out of these characters, then again, you can kind of hack, you don't need as much criticality because it's some people's job to be narratively responsive to, to other people's spontaneous uh, immersion. That's a good point. I'll chat with you more about that later. That's yeah. something I'm super interested cool. in. Cool. Yeah. I, I'm super big on democratizing protagonists. Building off of that, I'm really interested in the theatrical style of having everyone watch the scenes happen yeah. instead of having the private conversations. But I really want to try to make that happen for people who have never learned before. Mm -hmm. What ways, like just in general, to get people involved in LARP and get excited to play, but also to get them to be on stage in front of the audience watching, like instead of a private conversation. So taking it not only getting them to LARP, but getting them to that type of LARP. I think that's easier, personally. Uh, of the two, uh, the the sort of performative style seems to me to be more accessible uh, because. Uh, it's a, a fundamentally a group activity that they get to observe uh, and learn what normative behavior is before maybe they have to engage with it. Uh, instead of being, you know, like, hey, you're, you're actually the sidekick of the vampire prince. Go do some stuff, uh, which yeah. seems to be more of a, a challenge and uh, maybe cognitively a little more, more difficult. That's my impression. I don't know what... I'd add energy management as a question there. Um, social energy, there's a pattern in there called social bubble size, which is when you're on stage, you need to hold a larger social bubble because people are essentially talking or sharing into the space of the social bubble around them, right? Um, so if you are new at something, uh, holding, being on stage and being spontaneously creative costs more creative energy. If you are relatively shy or new at something, holding a large social bubble costs more social energy. So just think about how much time people energy of these types people can afford to spend at realistic costs for new players and make sure they get what they need in that time. So like there's an example in there where um, I played in this game that had a stage literally right where like people could get up and then they played these very dramatic kind of kind of uh, entertaining performative comp competitions. Um, and this is a major mechanic of the game. But what happened is that that immediately privileged the people who were able to hold a large performative social bubble for a long time because everybody else just got like super tired in the first hour of the game and then just stopped doing it, right? Um, so yeah, just uh, just be aware that that differential between characters and between sorry between players and their personal energy levels can be an order of magnitude. So then, how do you write the game so that the people who are up there doing it for the first time are getting the same amount for the same amount of energy rather than for the same amount of output? That's great. 
all the time you have. Uh, yeah. We'll be here all day. We're happy to talk more yeah. about this. Yeah, yeah. we're around. Um, yeah. There will be PDF versions of that someday. Please. Yeah, yeah th this is pretty drafty. So if you have any patterns um, of your own, from your own experience, we would love to hear them. Yeah, seriously. So please build on this, and we'll uh, we'll start a bigger conversation. Yeah. Right. yeah. Thank you very awesome. much. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Hey, Jason, let's do a count on your day. High five. Wait. High five. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.